0: We've been in the midst of a study of a book, the book of Revelation, that reveals to us that yes, God's promises are true, and yes, there is a victory that is uh, promised to us. And so we continue to see this unveiling of Jesus, the Messiah, and uh, the risen King, the one who reigns, and we have looked at four case studies, if you will, of the church. In chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, there are seven Churches mentioned, there are seven letters written to these churches. And uh, so we want to study these and reflect upon the truth that God writes to each of these churches with a heart of introspection, not accusation, right? It would be easy for us to read some of these churches and go, oh, yeah, I know a church like that, right? When really these things are meant to expose the nature of our own hearts personally as well as uh, the heart of this church collectively as an expression of a local church, uh, the body of Christ here. And, and so uh, there, are, there are many good churches and, and uh, those who stand upon the gospel of Jesus Christ right here in our community as well as around the globe. And these letters are written to every church in God's redemptive plan until He decides to unfold the things that we see yet to come. And so may we be faithful. Amen. And so let's study these three churches, the last three, uh, today with hearts of uh, humility and wanting to see what God has for us in them. So in chapter three, we have the church of Sardis mentioned first. uh, And I've tried to give you uh, two words, if you will, descriptive words to kind of use as handles to kind of hold on to as we talk about what the message is to this church. So the two words to the church in Sardis would be alive and dying. That might confuse you a bit, right? They seem to be opposing. But let's get into it. In verse 1, we see this yet again description of Jesus. It says, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words, this is the message, right, of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. He reiterates what we saw in chapter 1. We noted the seven spirits, not that God has multiple spirits perhaps, but that the Holy Spirit of God here is described in the midst of perfection, the number seven often used as a, as a, a number of completion, of, of divine perfection. And so the Spirit of God, the seven stars representing the angels or the messengers of the seven churches. And so in this description, the point we have is that Jesus holds these stars in his right hand, right? He is the one who has all authority. And so with that in mind, let's uh, continue on. And remember, we're studying these churches kind of with four points under each. We're we're looking for uh, a commendation, right? What did Jesus say? Was there something good that he noted? What was a critique, something that Jesus challenged them with of, hey, here's what I see that you need to repent of? Uh, What's the command? Uh, How do they respond to this that Jesus has brought forward? And then the conclusion. Uh, to him who conquers, what is it that comes about as a result of uh, living in such a way? So the commendation to the church in Sardis, we've, we have to go down to verse 4 to find just a, a bit of a glimpse of commendation to the church. It is mostly critique, but here's what he says in verse 4. He says, yet you, ha- you have still a few names, right? There's still a few in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Worthy. So there's a few who have not soiled their garments. Uh, Sardis was filled with temples of pagan worship, just like the other cities during the Roman Empire. Uh, many temples barred worshipers from entering the temple if they had any kind of stain or mark on their, ga- on their garment whatsoever. And so when Jesus says, there's a few... Right, who have not stained their garments, then we know that this is perhaps uh, something they would note as reference of like, oh yeah, when you, you can't go in if you have a stained garment. And so there are a few not guilty of the critique that Jesus mentions. The few that are staying faithful, uh, they have a promise of hope. They will walk with Jesus, for they are worthy. He says to walk with him. Faithfulness rewarded. It reminds me of Matthew chapter 25 verse uh, 23 which says well done good and faithful servant right here they are faithful these few and they will walk with Christ in garments of white and so what is the issue that these few are viewed to uh, have separated themselves from well here's the critique let's go back up to verse 1 Jesus says I know your works there are those two words I know again right Every one of these letters, Jesus says, I know. He is the all-knowing one. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are, say it with me, Dead. dead, right? You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, so it's immediately noticeable that something doesn't line up here. The reputation, meaning what the public opinion was, right, of the church in Sardis, was that the church was alive. Perhaps there was plenty of activity. There were things Happening, there was some expression of life, but something was wrong. Let's get a little backdrop of of the city of Sardis and the church there. So, Sardis as a city, the archaeologists and, and, and historians revealed to us that Sardis was a naturally fortified city, impregnable. Some thought uh, it sat on a plateau and it was built on that, so the rocky cliffs kind of surrounding it made it seem like this was impregnable, like no one could ever uh, defeat the city because of kind of the natural fortress that it had. In fact, the quote, to capture the Acropolis of Sardis was a widely used metaphor for achieving the impossible. So if you wanted to say to someone, man, you're achieving the impossible, you would kind of reference Sardis because it seemed impossible to uh, to to defeat it. It was easy to defend. However, this worked against the citizens of Sardis. Because they became too lax about their defenses, and in fact, twice experienced defeat by secret attack from the enemy. And so the name Sardis became synonymous over time with one who is strong but is defeated for lack of vigilance. So it seems that Jesus is getting their attention by alluding to this history of Sardis. You think you're impenetrable, but you're not, right? You think that you are alive but you are not. Your appearance doesn't match reality. What's going on outside doesn't match what is true on the inside. So Sardis was also known for manufacturing wool garments, which gives understanding perhaps as to why Jesus references the, the few who have not soiled their garments and, and those who are faithful would uh, walk with him with white garments. Um, that they would be awarded to the ones who conquer. So, so as we see this, there's some of that we, you know, that's unique to the city of Sardis that we see coming into this letter as we understand it and the message to, that Jesus gave to them. Uh, many commentators believe what is taking place here in Sardis is that the church was seeking to blend in with the culture around them to avoid persecution. Always a temptation, isn't it? Uh, to kind of blend in with the culture around us. They had soiled their garments, in other words, by taking on the look of the culture. They did not deny the name of Jesus, but they were not proclaiming the name of Jesus either. Perhaps these Christians tried to maintain close ties with Judaism so that being named among the Jews, they would not have to practice worship to Caesar. Remember, we, if you were here last week we talked about that the Jews were kind of excluded from the imperial cult and that form of worship and so if they could if they could kind of hide themselves with some kind of identity with the Jewish uh, culture then then maybe they wouldn't have to worship uh, Caesar. Right? So they were trying to protect themselves from that and and if they found a way to blend in they could avoid the persecution uh, that Jesus followers experienced and they could avoid the worship of Caesar. They thought they had it figured out maybe. Right? Kind of a win-win. We found this this way of of identifying with a certain group so that we don't get persecuted and and also so that we don't have to worship Caesar. They wanted to have their cake and eat it too, is what they were chasing after. And maybe the soil on their garments was the drip of frosting from the cake, right? Uh, They they found their way, but Jesus calls it out. And so what does he have to say about this? What does Jesus say in verse 2? Wake up! and strengthen what remains. It is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. There, there was more to be done. God had more in store for them. And so verse 3 says, remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. So the call to wake up, be alert, watchful, strengthen what remains and is about to die. In the previous verse, Jesus said to you, You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Maybe a bit of hyperbole there, right? Saying they are actually dead to get their attention. Here he says, strengthen what is about to die. And how are they to do that? How are they to to wake up and to kind of regain this this, this mind and heart for Christ? Well, he says to remember what you have received and heard. What is it that they had received? They had received the Holy Spirit. Right, that gracious gift of God to strengthen us. And it's only by the Holy Spirit that we are transformed into the image of Christ. So, friend, listen, as a Christ follower, you, when you confess Jesus as your Savior, the Scripture tells us that, that you are given the gift of God, of the Holy Spirit, to indwell you, to live within you. They had received that gift, and they needed to remember that they had the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. In fact, they perhaps were living in such a way that they were quenching the work of the Spirit, as the Word tells us we can do, that they were grieving the Holy Spirit by their actions. Instead of living in the power of the Spirit, they were, they were stifling the Spirit. And they also had heard, right? What is it that they had heard? Well, they had heard the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and that he is the victor, that he is the one who overcame, that he died, and that he rose again, and he is returning, right? They needed to be reminded of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they needed to be reminded of the desperate need that we each have of a Savior, uh, for a Savior. And so uh, this, this kind of common pattern that we've seen throughout these churches, we see it reflected here again of, of what is the call is to remember to repent and return, to remember, to repent, and to return. That's the message to the church in Sardis. And what is the conclusion? What is it if they wake up or not, right? What's going to happen? Verse 3, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So here, uh, if you have any knowledge of kind of end times and all of that kind of stuff, we, what, one of the things that most people know about is like Jesus is going to come like a thief in the night, right? That's, that's just something we hear uh, as a common thread of, of, of teaching and so forth. And, and so here we have it, Jesus saying, If you're not right, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. As I was reflecting this week, I, my mind went to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 which speaks of this coming as a thief as well. Verse 2 says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So here the Apostle Paul is acknowledging, like, yep, uh, the coming of the thief is going to be like this, the, uh, the coming of Christ will be like the thief in the night. But there's something different about those who are, remember, we started this study of wanting to be informed and encouraged. So as we seek to be informed about these things, here's what, here's what Paul says, though, in verse 4 of 1 Thessalonians 5. And these verses aren't for you on the screen. Just listen in. It says, but you are not in darkness, brothers. Right? You, you are not in darkness. For that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. So what Paul is drawing into is: listen, yeah, the the, the timing of when Christ returns, no one knows. It will be like a thief, but it ought not to catch you off guard, and ought not to be something that surprises you like one who is sleeping in their bed at night, and all of a sudden a thief is upon them. No, we are awake. We are to be alert. We are to be paying attention. We to be watching and waiting and found faithful for that return. So when it happens, it's it's not like, what is this? No, it's like, it is now, right? right. So we are not in the darkness, but the people of Sardis, right? The church had fallen asleep. And Jesus saying, if you don't um, turn, if you don't wake up, it will truly be like a thief. I, it is surprising upon you. May that not be true of us. Verse 5, he continues, to the one who conquers, um, you will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We'll speak about the book of life later as it comes up again multiple times throughout the rest of Revelation. But the clear call here is to wake up. To stand strong for the name of Christ, and Jesus says, "If to the one who conquers, I will confess his name before my Father and before His angels." Reminds me of Matthew chapter ten when Jesus says this. So, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Doesn't that sound very very similar, right? Jesus is just continuing the teaching that he gave to the disciples and he's saying to them, for those who who are faithful and those who are willing to to name my name and to be firm as witnesses in my name, then I name you before my Father and for those who don't, I will not. That's the sober warning here given to uh, the people of Sardis and to us. And speaking of this kind of Bold confession of Christ, like standing for Jesus, not hiding it, not blending in with the culture, just so that like well, if we just kind of do this, we don't have to deny Jesus, it's not like we're saying we don't believe in Jesus as but, but boy if we just kind of blend into the culture, then maybe we won't have any you know feathers ruffled or, or water ripples or that kind of stuff and but but speaking of that friend, listen the 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 scripture calls us to be uh, stand firm for Christ, amen? Uh, to, to be bold witnesses. And the Apostle Paul speaks of the fact that when, when we are bold witnesses, how that emboldens others to do so as well. Paul was a great example of that in the book of Philippians as he's writing from a prison cell. Um, and uh, he's, he's declaring like, man, there's joy in Christ. And how, where, how do we know where he found his joy and his strength? Well, uh, in the first chapter, 18 times the Apostle Paul names the name of Jesus. We want to know where he found his strength is by naming the name of Jesus, proclaiming the name of Jesus, standing in the name of Christ. And listen to what he says in verse 12 of chapter 1 in Philippians. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Here he's sitting in a prison cell. He says this hardship has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. The Roman guards were hearing of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, because Paul was there and he was talking about him. Right? And to all the rest of my imprisonment is for Christ. And, And most of the brothers, having become confident, listen, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. What's he saying? You know, God has given to me this opportunity. And I continue to speak of Christ and, and those around me, right here, right? These Roman guards, and so they're, they're hearing about Jesus. And, and the brothers and sisters who are hearing of that testimony, they are being emboldened to speak the name of Christ without fear as well. Standing for the name of Christ breeds uh, courage and boldness. And may we be a church who strengthens one another in that way. It's one of the reasons I love to uh, read "Voice of the Martyrs" and "Open Doors," like what I shared with you last week. Some of those statistics, because as I read those things, it's like, man, what would I do? I mean, some people today, in reality, they will, they will, they will face severe persecution for the name of Christ. You know, if they don't, unless they denounce the name of Christ, and and all I can do is play it out in my mind. What if? <laughs> what would I do? Right? If Someone. Held a gun to my head or put a knife to my throat and told me to denounce Jesus or die. What, what would I do? I'm strengthened by the fact that we have brothers and sisters around the world who will give their life for the name of Christ. And I pray that would be my response, right? So Paul encourages us to stand firm in the gospel, not frightened in anything by our opponents. So that's the church in Sardis. They were trying to blend in. They were trying to to maybe not suffer the persecution that others did. They were were trying also not to, to, to have to worship Caesar. And so they just found themselves kind of straddling this fence, riding the line. And Jesus calls them out. The second church, Philadelphia, the two words that we could use to kind of hold on to here is opportunity and protection. Opportunity and protection. Verse 7, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. What a great description. Here, it's not the keys of death and Hades that Jesus holds that was mentioned in the vision that we found in chapter 1, but here it's the key of David, a clear reference to the Messianic prophecy found in Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. Jerusalem, as you may well know, is referred to as the city of David. Jesus is referencing His complete authority that will be established in the new Jerusalem. We'll see it in chapter 21 of the study of Revelation. And so not only Jesus had the key to the dark side of God's wrath, right, the keys to death and Hades, as we already have seen, but he also holds the key to all the glory of his kingdom, that which is yet to come. Jesus holds the key. He's the one who has all authority. I love what Philippians 2 says in verses 9 and 10. So therefore God has highly exalted him. This is Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. That's what we see here in Revelation. Everyone will confess that Jesus is Lord. And everyone in heaven and on earth and under the earth, it says. The keys of, of David, the, that which is to come, right? The, the new heaven and the new earth and, and that which is under the earth, the keys of death and Haiti. Listen, uh, Jesus, every one of every place, it doesn't matter where, Jesus has full authority and every knee will bow. That's his place. So as we examine the Church of Philadelphia, we keep that in mind, Many, of course, know that Philadelphia means brotherly love. It was called uh, the gateway to the east here in this location, in this point in history where the city of Philadelphia was located in Asia Minor. And so with that being kind of this gateway, there was lots of of, of travelers, there was lots of of motion, and, and certainly this created a sense of opportunity in Philadelphia. It was also called Little Athens because of the many temples in the city. Jesus uh, was introducing himself here as the Holy One, the true one, as we saw. Undoubtedly, this was to teach that there was only one true God. To remind those in Philadelphia, hey, of all the plethora of of gods, the pantheon of gods that that you see worshipped among you, just remember, I am the Holy One, I am the true one. There is none other. And so with this description in mind, we read the commendation of Philadelphia, there is no critique. There is only commendation. Verse 8, "'I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie.'" Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on earth. I am coming soon. So this open door Jesus says I've set before you an open door. Throughout the New Testament, an open door signifies opportunity. It signifies opportunity for ministry and evangelism. In Colossians chapter 4 verse 3, Paul invites the believers there to pray, pray that God may open to us a door for the word. In John chapter 10 verse 9, Jesus declares, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And so the church in Philadelphia, because of their belief in Jesus, right, they have walked through the door of salvation. They've entered that doorway of Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So they've walked through that door of salvation. Therefore, they have an opportunity, right, an open door for ministry and evangelism. Jesus granted to them clear opportunity, although it would not be easy, even though perhaps they were small in number. Maybe that's the reference that Jesus makes here. You have little power. He's not talking about the weakness like they have less of the Holy Spirit or anything of that nature. Probably talking about the number of them in the city of Philadelphia, right? You have little power, but they were full of opportunity. And so Jesus will even cause their enemies, he says, the synagogue of Satan, right? To acknowledge his blessing upon them and his love for them. It's a very similar image to what we find in Isaiah chapter sixty verse 14. So the bottom line is this church is experiencing the rich favor of God. It seems that He is protecting them from the harsh treatment that so many others were experiencing. Things were different in Philadelphia, and they were faithful. They were full of patient endurance, as we saw Jesus note. They were walking with Him faithfully. Jesus also promised protection, to them from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world some believe this to refer to the rapture of the church that the church will not be present for the tribulation period that seven years of the pouring out of the wrath of god uh, for others they believe this is reference to the day of judgment that is to come that judgment uh, of christ that believe even believers will Uh, Stand before him, but yet we will be guarded. So similar to the promise that Jesus gave to the saints in Smyrna, that they would not be hurt by the second death. Here, Jesus promises to them uh, that they would be protected. So we'll discuss more of that as we go along and what is revealed. For now, we acknowledge that the protection that Jesus promised to them and the fact that he gives them hope by reminding them, I am coming soon. I am coming soon. We started this whole study by asking the question, what is soon to you, right? I mean, here we are 2,000 years later. What is is soon? Soon in God's time is perhaps not soon in our time. God will come when he determines it is time. So we wait. So there is no critique. Uh, We see the commendation. They are faithfully following, patiently enduring. They have these open doors of opportunity. And so what does Jesus tell them in verse 11? Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Hold fast. Stay the course. Press on, right? That's what Jesus tells them. Stay faithful. And the conclusion of that, he says to the one who conquers in verse 12, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. And so he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So a part of the historic aspect of the church in Philadelphia was they had experienced a severe earthquake, uh, around 17 BC, and uh, many never returned to the city uh, to live out of fear. They didn't want to be there, right? They'd heard the stories right now. They're, you know, this is being written in, in the mid-90s AD, so we're talking some 100 years later, a little more than 100 years later. And so um, they were still there were some living out in the countryside because they knew of the potential of this earthquake and, and what had happened uh, way back when, and, and out of fear, they never returned to the city. And so when Jesus says to them, right, that they would be a pillar in the temple of my God, strong and mighty, perhaps they have in mind, not like the pillars that crumbled, right, on the earthquake, but a pillar of God, a temple that you never have to leave. That's what he promises to them, right, to not fear, but to be confident in Christ. And our identity, he clearly marks here. He tells them, I will give them the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, and my own new name. Three names marked here, right? So just in case you doubt that you are mine or that anything or anyone can ever take you from me, here is my promise. You will have three names written upon you. Um, What a blessing the message is to this church. And... And we take to heart what he says of of being confident in Christ and holding fast to what is true and walking through the doors that God opens for us. We'll circle back around to that in a moment. The third church, Laodicea. The summary words we could use here, perhaps lukewarm and desperate, lukewarm and desperate. Again, there is no commendation whatsoever for the church in Laodicea. Let's listen to how it starts in verse 14, the vision of Christ. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. The amen, the the consummation of it all, right? The affirmation of truth, amen. When we say amen to something, we're saying yes, right? And so be it, this is it. This is kind of the, the, the consummation of it all, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ultimate example of faithfulness Christ gave to us and following in following obedience to the Father, the fact that in Jesus we have the, the exact representation of the glory of God, right? He was the faithful witness, the true witness declaring the glory of God, and He is the beginning of God's creation. Now, some have wrongfully interpreted this to mean that Jesus was created, that He has a beginning. Friend, the Scriptures teach us that Jesus is eternal, The word "beginning" here, in in the Greek, means source or origin. He is the source. He is the origin. Everything flows from Him. John chapter one tells us there there was nothing made that was made without Him. Right in Him was all all things were made, through Him and to Him and for Him. And so we don't have a contradiction of Scripture here. What we have is a as a reminder that it's only through Jesus that everything exists. You and me included. So the church in Laodicea needed, Laodicea needed to hear this because they thought they were pretty hot stuff. There is no commendation, there is only critique. Let's read it in verse 15. I know your works. You are neither hot, or excuse me, cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. You say, I I want you to be cold or hot, but so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Quite a difference in assessments there, isn't it? Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So to read the critique of Jesus given to the Laodiceans, it's like watching a a peer get hauled off to the principal's office or called to the boss's office like, oh man, glad I'm not them, right? Jesus is saying, you, you think you're righteous and you don't need a thing. He describes them as lukewarm. And what's up with that description? Well, Laodicea was a city that was located six miles south of another city called Heropolis, where there were famous hot springs. And they were also located about 10 miles west of a city called Colossae, known for its pure cold water. Hot and cold were both good in their world. Hot water for bathing, cold water for drinking and so on. Laodicea had no natural water source whatsoever. And so by the time they piped any hot water from Aeropolis or any cold water from uh, Colossae, what had happened by the time it arrived to them, it became lukewarm. Right? We know this is what happens to things that are hot, right? If, if there's not a continual heat applied, it, it grows lukewarm. And those things that are cold, if there's not continual refrigeration applied, it, it grows lukewarm. And that's what was happening here. They became lukewarm. And lukewarm meant that they were comfortable and complacent, that they no longer realized their condition or what they needed. They needed Jesus. And they were blind to their condition. They were overconfident and self-reliant. Jesus makes it abundantly clear that his assessment is very different from their own. When, what they saw of themselves, what they, they needed, nothing. But Jesus says, no, you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. And so like those in Ephesus, if you recall, whose lampstand was about to be removed, here Jesus said their condition meant that he was about to spit them out of his mouth, he was about done. He had been patient enough, waiting for them to repent and to call upon him. And so Laodicea is an example of how far off base our assessment of ourselves can become. They are an example of how our confidence, overconfidence and self-reliance can become a stumbling block. So I don't want you to get tired of me sounding the alarm or sending up a flare, but I do want to say once again today that we as a church are in a critical point of the life of our church. 30 years is what we celebrated last year. And praise God, at this point, we are in the best financial position this church has ever been in. And praise God, we have a wonderful leadership community, motivated and gifted and equipped. And you as the church body, you're following their lead as they organize and equip you for the work of the ministry. You are loving one another well. We could go on and on. I'm grateful. In other words, we're at a place where we could very easily become complacent, reliant, and overconfident. We're very easily at a place where we could be full of self-confidence and think that it's about us and what we can do and what we can can manufacture and what we can accomplish in and of our own strength. Friend, we, we must be mindful of this trap that our enemy would love for us to fall into, to become complacent. Good things, but not with Christ. So Jesus counsels them in verse 18 to buy gold from him so that they may be rich, to buy white garments so that they, may, uh, they can clothe themselves and, and, and salve for their eyes and so on. And we could talk about what each of these mean or how Laodicea was known for some of these things, but what I want you to notice is the source. As Jesus is counseling them, what does he say? Buy from who? Say it, me. Buy from me. Who, who's the source of these things? Right? He's reminding them, like, where do you get the strength? Where do you get the, the vision to see, the open doors that I want you to walk through, and the opportunities for ministry? Where do you get the strength to, to do that which I've called you to do? Where do you get the provision for what, what you need to do what I've called you to do? Buy from me. He reminds them, like, this is about me. And so, friends, one of the reminders for us in these letters is to just remember everything that we do, right, is about Jesus. It's from Him and to Him and through Him and and all of that. I mean, we just need to constantly remember it's about Jesus. We must never forget that the life of the church is Jesus Christ, that the power of the church is the Holy Spirit, and that the truth of the church is the Word of God. And how often we think we need more people or more resources at times to fix a problem or to reach more with the gospel. Listen, friend, we don't need more people or more money or resources until we first fall on our knees and cry out to God and say, we need you, right? And as we call out to God and cry out to Him, it's, He is the one who then provides exactly what we need, right? He is the one who will provide everything that we need to accomplish any open-door ministry endeavor that, that He calls us to. It is Him. I'm grateful for the people God has assembled here. I'm grateful for all of you, for your faithfulness to the Lord and your love for one another. I'm grateful, but friend, let's not forget where it all comes from. Let's not forget what we truly need is not, uh, you know, the, the resources that we can pool together to help one another. Or, or it, it, We need this presence of the Holy Spirit of God in our midst doing what only he can do. And that's transforming lives. That's changing lives. And that's what we're about, right? That's what we're about, right? Yeah. Yes. Right? Wanting to see what only God can do. And the way we express that dependence on him, the way we, we express that we need him in the midst of that, is to pray. I love Luke chapter 10 verse two. We uh, consider it now and then with our staff and as we think about volunteers and all that kind of stuff. It's the, the verse that many of you are familiar with, "The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few." Sounds like a problem, doesn't it? Right? Something to fix. So what does Jesus tell us to do, right? What does he tell us to do in the midst of this? The harvest is, there's more to reach for Christ, but the laborers are few. What are we supposed to do? Come up with a great marketing scheme? You know? No, he says, therefore, (laughs) pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Pray earnestly. That's our role. keeping our eyes upon the fact that we are dependent on him and only him for the true work that he wants to accomplish. Pray earnestly. I do grapple, and it came to mind again as, we, as I was preparing for this, of, and quite honestly, the first question that comes to my mind is not the right question. What most often comes to my mind is, do we pray enough? And I don't think that's really the right question because Jesus tends to address that, as you know, you got the issue of uh, the Pharisees standing out in the street corner, you know, praying repeatedly just for their own glory and all that. And like, that's just vain repetition. Don't pray that way, right? And you got the persistent widow who's seen in a positive light of coming, you know, for the ruler. And so, I mean, there's, there's persistence in prayer. Yeah. But here, here's the right question, I think, is, is do we pray with the right heart, right? Do we pray with the right heart? Do we pray with a heart of dependence? Do we pray with a heart that says, God... We need you, and we desire your work, and we desire what only you have for us, and we desire your glory to be known, not, not, not our name, not the name of Crossroads. We want your glory to be known. That, that whether we pray a little, pray a lot, the right heart is what is needed. Do we pray with a heart of dependence to say, God, we need you for every bit of this. Without you, we are wretched and pitiable and poor and naked, right? All of those things he described of the people here. In Laodicea, let's pray with the right heart. The command he gives in verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Don't ever forget the discipline of God is a good thing. The discipline of God is, is out of his love for us. And so as we experience that, be zealous and repent. There it is again, this theme that is, that is common throughout all of these letters. Repent, repent, repent. Acknowledge it. Call it what it is, right? See it. Call it what it is. Confess it to the Lord and turn from it and, and honor him. In verse 20, we see the conclusion As I stand at the door and knock, this is a a unique conclusion compared to the others. As I stand at the door and knock, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And what a gut-wrenching picture. Jesus standing outside the church, knocking. Hey, remember me? Yeah, Anybody willing to let me in? You sure are doing a lot of stuff, but it's all on your own. You become self-confident and self-reliant. This is about me. Don't forget. This is about me. Can I come in? Oftentimes this is misunderstood as being Jesus standing at the door of hearts who of unbelievers. All right, friends, that's not the picture. This is Jesus standing outside the church, believers who have become so self confident and so self reliant that they have forgotten that this whole thing is about Jesus. Amen. And the reward is great, right? For those who let me in, like, like we get to sit with Him, we get to reign with Him, and we see a lot of that described as Revelation continues to unfold. And, and what a glorious scene! May we never forget this is about Jesus, for Him, and to His glory. So. What's the so what? So We have a few here as we finish. First of all, stand for Jesus. You know, if, as, as the Spirit of God is working in your life, He's your true teacher, and, and I just ask you, invite you to be sensitive to whatever He may be convicting you about, but I think probably for some of us, there's some conviction of, you know what, we've, we've found some pretty comfortable ways to blend into the culture, to blend into society, so that we don't suffer too much for the name of Jesus. Maybe no one at work even knows you're a Christian because you've been reluctant. Like, man, if I can find a way, if I can get the win-win, if I, can, you know, if I can make my wife happy by going to church, but, hey, if I can just keep Jesus quiet at work so I don't get ridiculed by my friends, and maybe, maybe I can walk this road, right, in a, in a win-win I don't know what else it may be for you. Something, the Spirit of God convicting you. The call for us is to wake up and realize everything that you have in life, even the very breath that you breathe, is a gift of God's grace. Stand for Him. Stand firm for Him. Some of you will need to know we have baptism coming up in April. April seventh, we're going to rejoice with those who will go public with their testimony of faith. And but here's part of the question I have: for some of you, maybe you've been quiet about your faith. And and as we have communion uh, regularly the first of the month, you you take communion like you you confess Jesus. You want to you know you want to quietly in the in kind of the the the, the quietness of your seat there. You want to say yes, I believe that Jesus died for me and that I'm uh, 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 saved and so on. But but man, don't ask me to like. Go public. Don't ask me to be baptized. You're, you're resistant to that for some reason. And I'll just, I'll just cut it down to this for you and ask you the question, If I may be so bold, is why would you continue to take communion if you're not willing to be baptized? Why, why, why hide in the comfort of your seat when what Scripture calls us to in an act of obedience is to be baptized and to declare publicly? Your faith in Christ. Stand for Jesus. Second of all, we'll walk through doors God opens, and that's for you personally. What opportunities is God giving you to have conversations this week with your friends and your family about the name of Jesus, about salvation? Walk through those doors. Doors of opportunity for us here collectively as a a church body of ministry and in our community. And we've got wonderful doors that God seems to be opening. And some of them we're just kind of inching our way through. You know, who knows? I don't know. We're inching our way kind of into some things with Hispanic ministry. And we've got, you know, version notes that are now in Spanish. We've got a a Spanish community group that's meeting. And and, and we're just kind of like, Lord, I don't know. Like, is there something you're doing that, that gives us a wider door? And we're patiently waiting for God to be the one to open those doors, those kind of things. What is it for you? We, we got, with our Kids Hope ministry, I'm so thankful we have a wide open, God has blown the doors wide open for us to have 28 mentors in a public school. And you know what? We could do more. The door is bigger than what we're walking through right now. It's a lot bigger, actually. Will we be okay with that? Oh, 28, Woo. Or is God asking us to have 50? Be in all four elementary schools in our town. I don't know. But let's be willing to walk through the doors God opens. Amen? And thirdly, just stay dependent on Him. Stay dependent on Him. Um, one of the best ways to do this I have found in my life personally, and I would encourage you to do the same every day. Every day, preach the gospel to yourself. Every day, when you get out of bed, Before you do much of anything else, just say, God, I am so thankful that you today have shown me your grace and mercy. I'm so thankful you give me the breath of life. I'm so thankful that, that you have saved me, that Jesus is my, my Savior and my Lord. I'm so thankful that you give me opportunity today and what is going to unfold, whether it's hard or whether it's you know, easy and goes according to plan. Whatever it is, God, today, I'm thankful you're with me. I'm thank- just, just start every day, right, preaching the gospel to yourself and reminding yourself of the wonderful news that God has saved you. And he saved you for a purpose and a meaning in life. Stay dependent on it. Let's pray. Father, as we think about these things, may your grace and your mercy um, strengthen us. We thank you for the reminder of these churches that uh, you are on the throne that everything in life comes from you. You are the giver of life. You are the sustainer of life. May we humbly surrender our lives to you. May we live to the praise of your glory. May we stand firm for the name of Jesus. He died for us. He went to the cross for us. May we stand firm for him. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name I pray.